Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 63. It's also going to be our last episode of 2023. I'll be taking a short one-week break, but we'll be back in January with new episodes. Today's episode is actually a listener suggestion. So this is a shout out to Sasha. Thank you so much for emailing and suggesting this case. Known as the Angel Maker or the Ogress of Reading, Amelia Dyer's story is a grim chapter in the history of true crime. Born in 1837, this seemingly ordinary Victorian woman concealed a malevolent secret beneath her facade of respectability. As an outward-looking, caring, and trustworthy figure, she operated in the shadows, preying on society's most vulnerable members. Join us as we unravel the life of Amelia Dyer, a woman whose maternal guise hid a dark and insidious reality. From her early days to the macabre climax of her crimes, we'll journey through a web of deception, greed, and unthinkable acts that shocked a nation. So dim the lights, lock your doors, and brace yourselves for a tale that will send shivers down your spine. This is historical true crime, and you're about to experience the bone-chilling story of Amelia Dyer, a tale of murder most foul. Our episode will take us back to the shadows of Victorian England, a time when gas lamps illuminated cobblestone streets, and the veneer of respectability often masked a much darker reality. In our exploration of the notorious Amelia Dyer, we can't ignore the horrifying backdrop against which her crimes unfolded, the chilling phenomenon of Victorian baby farming. Baby farming, a term that might sound innocuous, was anything but. It was an industry built on deception and tragedy, exploiting the desperation of unwed mothers and the vulnerability of innocent infants. Picture this. It's the late 19th century, a time when societal norms and moral standards placed immense pressure on women to conform. For unmarried mothers, the stigma was often unbearable. Enter the baby farmers, seemingly benevolent women who offered a solution, a way to discreetly dispose of the unwanted consequences of societal judgment. These baby farmers, like Amelia Dyer, promised a safe haven for infants, charging desperate mothers a fee for their services. What these unsuspecting mothers didn't know was that far too often, their infants faced a grim fate. Infant mortality rates were alarmingly high, and the lack of oversight allowed unscrupulous individuals to exploit this tragic reality. The infants entrusted to these baby farmers were often subjected to neglect, malnutrition, and even worse, a cruel destiny at the hands of those who should have protected them. To truly understand Amelia Dyer's heinous actions, we have to delve into the depths of this dark practice. As we unfold the narrative, keep in mind the desperate circumstances that fueled the baby farming industry, an industry that laid the groundwork for Amelia's reign of terror. Amelia Elizabeth Dyer was born in 1837 outside of Bristol into a large family. She read poetry and books, had a good education, and was naturally nurturing. When Amelia was a little girl, her mother was diagnosed with typhus and eventually passed away after fits and episodes of severe mental instability. Amelia took care of her until her death in 1848, at which point she married a man 35 years her senior, George Thomas, and lost touch with the majority of her family. Before the elderly Thomas passed away, the couple would have one child together. Now that she was widowed and with a child... 
Amelia was in dire need of money. She had studied nursing with a midwife during her marriage, and the midwife had educated her about baby farming. Amelia, though, would go one step further. She started running ads in neighborhood newspapers, presenting herself as a respectable married mother who would give the kids a loving and secure home. Afterward, she'd insist on receiving a sizable one-time payment in exchange for her services. But Dyer recognized that there was a simpler method to pocketing all of the cash, simply getting rid of the children, rather than having to use that money to feed and care for them. According to Lee for the BBC, traveling from her homes in Bristol and Reading to locations as far away as Liverpool and Plymouth, Amelia would charge anywhere from 10 to 80 pounds or around 1,000 to 8,000 pounds in modern currency for her services. PC Colin Boyce, the curator of the Thames Valley Police Museum, which has an exhibition about her crimes, said that the majority of newborns entrusted in her care were killed within days, or in some cases, even hours. According to author Angela Buckley of Amelia Dyer and the Baby Farm Murders, the parents of her victims wouldn't have known that she intended to kill their children. They believed they were sending their child to a happy home. At first, she would overdose the infants with an opioid concoction intended to soothe their cries. After that, she would pretend to be upset about their death and call a coroner to confirm their deaths, claiming to be shocked that the infant had passed away so quickly. Her good fortune would momentarily end in 1879 when a physician started to have doubts regarding the sheer number of fatalities he had been summoned to record and wondered if they were all truly unintentional. He informed the authorities about her, but she ended up only being given a six-month hard labor term for neglect. It would be insufficient to stop her from carrying out her gruesome crimes. After being freed, Amelia would adopt a new approach. Following a short stay in Cardiff, she moved to Reading in 1895, and upon realizing the foolishness of having doctors certify the deaths, she began to simply dispose of the bodies herself by throwing them into the River Thames. She would also watch the authorities quite carefully, pretending to have a breakdown and checking herself into an asylum, claiming to have suicidal thoughts if she thought they were about to catch up to her. She even attempted suicide once, but a lengthy history of misuse and a strong tolerance to opium prevented her from dying. In addition, Amelia moved towns on a regular basis, assuming a different identity each time to evade the authorities and parents who were hoping to find their missing children. A carpet bag was retrieved from the Thames by a fisherman who was traveling down the river on March 30, 1896. Inside the bag, wrapped in linen, newspaper, and brown paper, was the half-decayed body of a baby girl, Helena Fry. The infant's neck was wrapped with white tape and a knot was securely wound over its left ear. Detective Constable James B.D. Anderson discovered a clue when looking through the packaging, which is currently on exhibit at the police museum, after Helena's body was recovered from the water. The package was labeled Bristol Temple Meads and had a stamp from the Midland Railway dated October 24, 1895. More significantly, he was able to discern Dyer's marital name in previous residence, Mrs. Thomas of 26 Pidgets Road, Caversham, despite the name and address being smudged. Despite being guided to her by the body, the police were unable to officially connect her to the crimes. Thus, they built a trap. They had a young woman pose as a decoy and had her post an advertisement for a baby in need of a good home. 
In response, Dyer scheduled a meeting with the woman, only to stumble into an ambush by police. Police would search her home and found signs of human decomposition. Ads, telegrams about adoption plans, seamstress tape similar to the kind that had been wrapped around the infant corpse's neck, and letters from mothers inquiring about their children. While searching for further bodies, police dredged the Thames and arrested her, because six more bodies were discovered. Amelia would admit to the killings and also tell police that she could tell because of the white tape around their necks. According to Lee for the BBC, Detective Constable Anderson made a particularly graphic discovery after seeing a parcel close to Clapper's Pond. Quote, taking it straight to the mortuary, it was confirmed that the corpse was that of a female child aged about 12 months. It was in more of an advanced state of decomposition than any of the other bodies recovered. So much so that when the parcel was opened, the body and head fell to pieces. Amelia would appear for trial at the Old Bailey on May 22, 1896. The 57-year-old's lone defense and justification was that she was insane, since she had been previously committed to a Bristol institution. At her trial, Dyer entered an insanity plea despite having admitted to the deaths. During her incarceration, she had demonstrated religious devotion by leading hymns and lecturing other inmates. It's said that she had a hymn book with her during the trial. The defense highlighted Dyer's letters, which reflected her religious fervor and her desire to be forgiven, as proof that she was not entirely accountable for her deeds. But the prosecution would claim that Amelia was engaging in cunning play acting, and that she had previously employed similar strategies when facing suspicion. It took the jury only a matter of minutes before they rejected Dyer's claim of insanity and found her guilty of murder. On June 10, 1896, Amelia was given a death sentence and executed at Newgate Jail. In the end, Amelia was only found guilty of one murder, that of Doris Marmon. Popular 25-year-old barmaid, Evelina Marmon gave birth to her daughter Doris at a boarding house in January of 1896. She promptly put an ad in the Bristol Times and Mirror's miscellaneous section and began to solicit adoption offers. It said quite simply, wanted respectable woman to take a young child. Marmon hoped to eventually get her daughter back and planned to return to work. Interestingly, there was an advertising next to hers that read married couple with no family would adopt a healthy child, nice country home, terms 10 pounds. A few days later, Marmon would receive a letter from Dyer. It read, I should be glad to have a dear baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. She went on, we are just regular individuals with decent circumstances. For the company and comfort of my household, I would rather have a child than for financial gain. My spouse and I have a deep affection for kids. I'm not a parent myself. A child raised by me will have a loving mother and a nice home. When Marmont went to meet Dyer, she was taken back by her poor looks and senior age. But because Dyer had showed compassion for Doris, Evelina gave her her daughter, 10 pounds and a cardboard box containing clothes. She went back a broken woman, but only a few days later was sent a letter stating that everything was good. Marmon would reply, but would never get a response. Dyer would not go back to Reading, but instead would take Doris to her daughter Polly's home in London. There, Dyer would promptly locate some white dressmaking edging tape, coil it twice around the infant's neck, and knot it. Death would not have come instantly. Dyer went on to say, I used to like to watch them with the tape around their neck, but it was soon all over with them. 
It's reported that both women assisted in covering the child's body with a napkin. On Wednesday, April 1st, 1896, a different child, Harry Simmons, was brought to Dyer. But as there was no extra white border tape, it would be taken off of Doris's body and then used to choke the 13-month-old child. Both remains would be placed inside a carpet bag on April 2nd, along with bricks for weight. Dyer then made her way to Reading. She forced the carpet bag between railings and into the River Thames at a remote location next to a weir at Caversham Lock that she knew well. And it would be for this murder of Doris that Amelia Dyer would eventually be convicted and executed for. It's difficult to determine the full scope of Amelia's offenses. Witnesses said they saw up to six newborns being taken into her home each day when she was at her busiest. Given that Dyer practiced as a baby farmer for some 30 years, it's likely that she was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of children. She had only spent nine months in Caversham, but Reading police found evidence that she had cared for at least 15 babies at her home during this time. The idea of women killing anyone was shocking for the time period, but the fact that she killed babies was beyond comprehension. The handrail of Redding's Clapper's footbridge had wooden crosses carved in by horrified locals as a tribute to the innocent victims of the serial killer who preyed on society's prejudice and its most vulnerable citizens. The large number of deaths and the length of time Dyer had escaped conviction made this case widely publicized. Additionally, it led to a revolution in adoption legislation requiring authorities to police and end the misuse of baby farms. Many acts of Parliament were passed in the years after the Dyer case, such as the Children's Act in 1908 and the Infant Life Protection Act of 1897. These included mandates that any change of custody or death of a child under seven years old must be reported to the local authorities within 48 hours, along with all relevant information. Baby farming was outlawed, and adoption and foster care regulations were greatly improved. A well-known ballad arose from the scandal of the Dyer case. Amelia would gain notoriety as the Ogress of Reading. The ballad goes like this. The old baby farmer, the wretched Miss Dyer. At the old bailey, her wages is paid. In times long ago, we'd have made a big fire and roasted so nicely that wicked old jade. And finally, some have even speculated that Amelia Dyer was Jack the Ripper because she was a murderer and still living at the time of the killings. But even William Stewart, the author who originally made the suggestion, thought that Mary Percy was a better suspect. Dyer does not stand out among the Jack the Ripper candidates because there's no proof linking her in any way to these murders. The tale of Amelia Dyer, the Ogress of Reading, serves as a stark reminder of the darkness that can lurk behind a seemingly ordinary facade. And as we dim our lights and lock our doors, let us reflect on this chilling chapter in history hoping that the lessons learned will prevent such horrors from haunting the shadows of our society again. And that will bring us to the end of another episode of Historical True Crime. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to rate, review, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of a case you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod on Facebook at uh, Historical True Crime Podcast, or send us an email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And again, we're going to take a short break next week for the holidays, but we'll be back in January with another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.